Well, good morning, everybody. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23 this morning. Uh, This is week four of our five-week series in the rise of Israel. And you've probably noticed, um, I think about things mathematically, but you've probably noticed that Saul's uh, reign is declining while David's uh, influence and popularity and maturity is rising at the same time. So, and this is something you'll see a lot in the scriptures. You'll see this, especially in a given passage, um, you'll see this decline and a rise going on at the same time. And for me, it's, a, it's an example of what God is trying to do in building up leaders and replacing leaders at very strategic points of history. Um, because one of the things that God does in order to help us get the characteristics that he wants us to have for a given job or period is he gives us opportunities to do the opposite, right? So he puts us in scenarios where we have the ability to make rash decisions or poor judgment calls uh, so that we can then develop habits that are the opposite of what our flesh wants to do. So if you've got your hand out there today, the first blank is the word opposite, actually. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and 24 today. And uh, the key thought, and Monica, I should have called you this week about this, but I've called you about 9 billion other things this week, so I decided to leave it alone. But there's some punctuation that goes in that key thought, and I didn't know what it was. But here's the thought. Do right, right now. Do right, right now. And the punctuation is nothing. I got it right. Awesome. Cool. Ah, all right, yeah. I, there's always something. So uh, so for those of you that have uh, come up to me and said, hey, Easter at Coolidge is going well this year, blah, 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 all these things, there's a very specific reason it's going well. And that's because of our uh, former 20-something uh, communications director, Monica Kramer. Is that awesome? That's, I didn't say 30, right? Okay. And uh, she's just done a fantastic job of messaging all of this stuff and keeping me uh, clear on communications and helping. So I just wanted to recognize that this morning. So we're in 1 Samuel 23. We're starting in verse 7. Uh, and let me set the stage for you at this point. Uh, last week was David and Goliath. Uh, David kills Goliath. David's popularity soars. Saul begins to get jealous. We left last week with Saul literally throwing spears at David. He missed him twice last week. And in the interim passage from last week to this week, Saul has an army of about 3,000 people that are hunting down David at this point. Uh, so you've got 3,000 people chasing you. Now, David also has a band of men that are with him. He's got 600 guys that are with him. So if you think about this from a military perspective, if you've got 3,000 going against 600, 3,000 are probably more well-armed because they're with the king. So David's not looking good here. So David is fleeing and hiding in different places. So 1 Samuel 23, verse 7. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So right off the bat, we see this really messed up theology from Saul, right? Because Saul is interpreting events through his own lens and not through the lens of what God has spoken. Because God has spoken to the prophet Samuel and said, David's going to be king. And it's widely known at this point. We actually find out later in today's passage that all of today's players at this point in time already knew that David was supposed to be king. 
So Saul is looking at events, and we've all heard people do this, right? We've all been talking with somebody, and they go, well, this circumstance popped up, and well, obviously that's just God's will for me to do that. Right? Well, she's a really nice person, and my wife treats me awful, so it's obvious that I'm supposed to divorce my wife and go marry my secretary right now. Right? Have, we, have you heard this before? I hear this. And it's like, your brain just does it. You're going, I don't think that's how we want to interpret this. Right? So Saul is saying, looking at the turn of events, saying, God's delivered him into my hand, so this is obviously a work of God. And that's not it at all. So verse 8, Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now there was a problem with this town because the Philistines were invading this area. They were all over this area. They were just infested in this area. And the problem in my mind is that you have King Saul and he is so focused on revenge and getting David that he is ignoring the need of all of his people to get rid of this Philistine infestation. So he takes 3,000 men to go after one guy when his people are under siege by the Philistines. So this is where his priorities are at this point. So verse 9, When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod, this is a linen garment, here. And David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to destroy to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down, as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? Did, did I just. Did your brain hit repeat there for a second? Because David's asking the same question twice now. Now, from what you know about God and what you know about communicating with God and people that communicated with God in the Old Testament, how does God typically respond when you ask him the same question twice? Is it typically a positive, yes, I'm glad you came back for me, back to me for ver- verification and validation of this message, or not so positive? Just take a guess. It's okay. Not so positive, right? Generally, the answer is, yea, verily, you should have listened to me the first time. Smack down here, right? It, it does not go well for the person. Um, and I'm not really sure if, if David is doubting or if he's just clarifying. And the reason I'm not going to come down hard on David here is because earlier in this passage, uh, David is actually communicating to God through the umen and thumen. Maybe you know what those are. Uma Thurman. It's not Uma Thurman, no. She was not there then, right? Wow, now I want to have some I want to have some kill bill reference here at this point. I can't think of anything that's great, so oh well. So the Uman and Thurman are these uh, stones that were present on the breastplate of the high priest. And nobody really knows exactly how they functioned, but all throughout the Old Testament these stones, you would ask a question of God and something happened with the stones that was very clearly visible, a response for God's answer. Now, if that doesn't sound wishy-washy and weird, right? I would love for you to be able to see the looks on your faces right now because most of them are like, what are you talking about? They never taught me this in Sunday school. Yeah, there's a reason because <laughs> nobody understands it. That's why they didn't teach you this. Um, 
So the reason David's asking these binary questions, these yes or no questions, is so he can get a yes or no response from the breastplate of the high priest's garment, right? So I don't have a lot more to give you than that other than they were very simple questions, very direct questions. And there may have been a fuzzy signal that came back on the first one. Didn't look like it from the text, but perhaps from David's perspective there was. So, end of verse 12, and the Lord said, they will deliver you. So, verse 13, David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. Now, what do we know about Keilah so far? It was a what kind of a city? It was a fortified walled city. They were inside the city. So if me and 600 of my favorite friends go into a walled city, should we be very difficult to find? 601 people, should we be difficult to find? And the answer is no. And what happened? They got away. So God can keep you safe. God can keep you safe in the city. How many of you have ever been to uh, Philadelphia? Ever been to Philadelphia? Uh, my best friend in college was from Philadelphia, and I went and uh, stayed in that area one summer. And he took me to an area of Philadelphia called Kensington. Anybody familiar with Kensington? Nobody. Um, Kensington is equivalent to uh, Highland Park area of Chattanooga. It is not where you want to be. Uh, certainly not where you want to be alone. Certainly not where you want to be alone at night. Uh, so he, with two or three of his friends, now his friends are like six, three big guys. We felt pretty good, you know, and I'm like this scrawny white guy in the middle going, okay, we'll see how this goes. So he brings me down to Kensington, and we walk through Kensington in the middle of the day, okay, because all the drug dealers are asleep apparently in the middle of the day. So we walk through Kensington, and he shows me the curb, the sidewalk. And he said, you know what's special about the Kensington sidewalk? And I said, not really, no. What's, what's special about that? He said, well, that's where the Kensington stomp was originated. I said, is this a dance move of some kind? And they all started laughing at me. I thought, I don't, I don't get it. He said, no, what they do is they mug somebody, and after they've beaten them up, they put their face with their mouth open on the side of the uh, sidewalk, and they kick the back of the head, and it breaks all the teeth in the mouth. And I said, uh, I don't feel safe here. Can we leave now? And uh, he said, it's okay. You're safe with us. And I thought, well, maybe, but can we leave now? Right? So whenever I read a passage about danger in a city, I always think back to Kensington. Uh, but God can keep you safe in the city. So, verse 14, And David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hands. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, this is Jonathan speaking, For the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Now, everything he said up to that point is correct, right? Saul won't find you, and you will be king. And then Jonathan says something that if you know the whole scripture of the Old Testament is quite sad, and I shall be next to you. And it's kind of sad because that never actually happens, right? 
Jonathan dies before that can actually happen. He said, even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. And as far as we know, they never saw each other again. And that was it. That was the end of their friendship. And it's one of the, the, the most talked about friendships in the entire Old Testament because there's this covenant that they make uh, that is unbelievably strong. I mean, Jonathan is the prince of Israel. His father is the king. And he goes out and he risks his own life and his own future kingdom one day to affirm and encourage David, who is his father's enemy, who, he, who his father thinks is his enemy. So you see this unbelievable friendship, and it ends here, and there's really no, like, it ends on a positive note. It's just this sad note of he encourages him and he leaves. So verse 19, Then the Ziphites come up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hakilah? which is on the south of Jeshimon. Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. So switching gears for just a second. How many of you know the Psalms? Many of the Psalms have this little prefacatory preface. I don't know how to say the word I was trying to say, so just go a different way grammatically. They have this little preface at the beginning, this introductory comment, and it says a psalm of David when he was blah, 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 right? And you're kind of going, yeah, well, where was that? Well, this one, your blank here, is Psalm 54. So flip over your Bibles to Psalm 54, and I want to show you what was in David's heart at this moment. Because this, to me, is amazing. This, to me, is absolutely incredible. Um, How many of you journal or have a diary or have some regular type of writing that you do? Anybody? So we've got a couple that do. And generally what I have found is that I can be very raw, I can be very blunt and honest in what I am writing down. Because that's for me, that's not for anybody else. But this is a song that David wrote. Who's got Psalm 54? Who's got it? Go for it. So who is the hero of David's psalm? God is, right? So David is being pursued by 3,000 men, and God is still the hero of his story. It's amazing to me. And he pours out his heart to God, and he says, deliver me, because you are the one that can deliver me. It's a beautiful uh, insight into what's going on in David's mind. So often we read the scriptures, and I, I wonder so many times, what was this person thinking at this point? I mean, what was going through their head with this many people chasing them? And we get this insight into it. So verse 21, and Saul responds uh, to the men of Gibeah here. Uh, I'm sorry, to the, to the Ziphites. And he says, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. 
Please go and find out for sure and see the place where the hideout is and who has seen him there. For I am told he is very crafty. (laughs) Yeah, he's very crafty. He threw down on Goliath with a stone. He's quite crafty, okay? See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain of the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. So, next blank, God can keep you safe in the forest. So I don't know the last time that you went to the forest, but God can keep you safe there. He can keep you safe in the city. He can keep you safe in the forest. There's a few more blanks that we'll get to, and I think we'll see the theme of this morning's lesson as we move through. Verse 25, Therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines, so that they called the place the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds of En Gedi. So God can keep you safe on the mountain, too. And you might be thinking, Jim, this sounds like a second-grade Sunday school class today. Sometimes the truths are pretty simple. God can keep us safe wherever he is. Now, who do you think might have potentially stirred up the Philistines to strike at that particular strategic moment in the war against the Philistines? I think God might have just done that. So he stirs this thing over here in the hearts of the Philistines to rise up, and he times the messenger so that the messenger gets there just in time to tell Saul they're on either sides of this mountain, and there's really... When you talk about mountains in Israel, um, they're really more like big hills, okay? They're, they're not just what we would think of as the rocky mountains or the massive structure. They're just not. They're really kind of big hills. So to be on either side of a big hill, you are really close to one another, okay? This is a lot closer than he's on one side of the Rockies and we're on the other side of the Rockies. Not, not that at all. So verse, to chapter 24, verse 1. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Verse 2, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. Somebody else have a different translation? To relieve himself. Yes. Yeah, he he went to the bathroom here. Um, So... It's interesting to me because in this particular area of Israel, there are massive caves. And when I say massive caves, I don't mean, oh, that's a big cave. There's five or ten people can fit in there. Uh, There's many historical accounts of thousands of people being able to stay in these caves. One of the accounts that Josephus tells, he's an early historian, is that there were 30,000 people from one city that hid in one of these caves when this storm came through. So they, they were safe inside this cave. So when I say large caves, I mean 30,000 people can comfortably fit. That's a big cave. All right? so, so don't think like this room is the size of the cave and everybody's squinched up inside and that's where we're at. It's a whole different, whole different setting there. So Saul went in to use the restroom and David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. 
Verse 4, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. So you kind of see David's men taking that same philosophy and view of life that Saul took earlier of this circumstance rose up. You're supposed to be king. You can go help God and be king now. And, and the reality is that God's plan doesn't need any help. Um, God's prophecy doesn't need any help to come to fulfillment because it's going to happen. Um, and I think David shows a tremendous amount of wisdom here. So David arose in verse, into verse 4 and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So that's how close he was. So who's got a dress on? Katie, you got a dress on today. Um, so if I were to, that's totally inappropriate. If your husband were to cut off a piece of your dress, how close would he have to be to cut off a piece of your dress? Pretty darn close, right? Okay. Uh, now, most theologians believe that the robe was not actually on Saul because what was Saul doing? He's going to the bathroom, so he takes his robe off, he sets it aside, he goes, he does his business, but he's close enough to be there. Now, a lot of people will say, well, how did Saul not hear David? Well, David grew up tending sheep and fighting lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right? It, he's, a, he's a pretty crafty dude, he knows how to be quiet. And also, just outside the mouth of this cave are 3,000 men of Saul. They're probably not all standing perfectly still. There's armor clanking, there's horses moving, there's this, there's a lot of noise out there. So David had, this is a great opportunity from a stealth perspective to get really close to Saul. So verse 5, now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him, troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master. Don't miss that. Because Saul is still king. Um, and oftentimes, we take the approach that just because we don't like the current leadership, that it is okay to disparage the current leadership. And it is not. So I want to be real clear about that. That I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he is the anointed of the Lord. Because like it or not, this is Jim's commentary, like it or not, Saul was anointed as well, just like David was anointed. And until God replaces Saul... Saul's the man. Okay? Does this make sense? Does everybody see the real clear application to our society today? All right. Verse 7, So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. So here's your blank. It's never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right or to fulfill prophecy. Because some really crazy stuff has been done on, the, on behalf of God, in the name of God, to try to fulfill prophecy that has nothing to do with the work of the Lord. So verse 8, And David arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called to Saul and said, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. Now where is David physically right now? He's on the ground outside the cave. Who else is outside the cave? The 3,000 men. Who are the 3,000 men chasing? They've been clearly communicated who they're chasing. So this is a massive, massive risk. Now, these 600 guys are still behind David. Okay. And, and we will learn later on as we go through the stories of the Old Testament and find out about the men that follow David 
is that leaders tend to have people that follow them that are very similar to them. Right? David was a warrior king, and he had warriors that followed him. Uh, if you think David fighting the lion and the tiger and Goliath, uh, or it's not a lion and a tiger. I keep saying that because it's the Wizard of Oz. It's a lion and a bear. There we go. i got to get my theology straight here. Don't let me do that, guys, okay? If you think that David fighting the lion and the bear and Goliath were bad, you can read some of the descriptions of what his quote-unquote mighty men did. They make David look like, you know, he sat behind a computer and worked on Excel spreadsheets all day. Okay? Uh, I mean, these were some bad dudes. Uh, one of his guys took the, uh, the jawbone of a donkey and killed like 600 people. I don't care what weapon you give me, uh, unless it's like a, uh, maybe a nuclear missile. I could probably, I'd probably mess that up, right? I'd probably blow myself up. I, there's probably no weapon that you can give me that I can kill 600 people with. Okay, these are bad dudes. So they're all standing behind David. So verse 8, And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? And I think there's something that's really critical here that's kind of in between the lines. Um... The New Testament talks about this concept that when you bring your gift before the altar and you remember that somebody else has something against you, not you have something against somebody else, somebody else has something against you, you leave your gift, you go, you reconcile that relationship, and then you come back and you offer your gift. And that's what David is doing here. Because in that Psalm 54, what did David talk about doing? He talked about he wanted to make a sacrifice. Right? He wanted to make a sacrifice before God. But Saul has something against him. So he goes and he finds Saul and he reaches out and he tries to restore this relationship at the risk of his own life. So when we, as New Testament believers, kind of feel a little uncomfortable because there's an awkward situation because somebody has something against us and we don't really want to do it, yeah, we have no theological basis to back off of that whatsoever. We're supposed to go and have the conversation and reach out and try to restore the relationship. So verse 10, look, this day, this is David still speaking, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you into my hand in the cave and someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, now why would David call him his father here? Do any of you call your father-in-law your father? Call him dad? Anybody? This is a very... You do, Doug? Well, that's because Saul was David's father-in-law. One of the passages that we skipped was that if you remember what part of the reward for killing Goliath was the daughter. And Saul gave David his daughter. So Saul is actually David's father-in-law. So if you think your father-in-law has it in for you, you got nothing on the David-Saul relationship here, okay? So he says, My father, see, verse 11, See the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I have cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is evil, that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Now, here's your blank there. Saul has seen a portion of his robe before in 1 Samuel 15. Because when Samuel came up to Saul right after uh, this wickedness that Saul had done, God told Saul to go and to destroy this other people and to destroy everything about them. And Samuel walks up and he says, Why do I hear the sheep 
crying out in my ears. And Saul's like, well, I can do good with this stuff, and it's good, and it's okay, and it's great. And Samuel reaches out, and he grabs a portion of Saul's robe, and he tears it off, and he says, God has torn away the kingdom from you, just like I have torn this robe. So when David is holding before Saul a piece of his robe, you got to think that Saul remembers back to the conversation that he'd had with Samuel just a few weeks or months before about this exact same thing. And there's really no awareness that we know that David has of what Samuel did. So God uses two independent events to communicate the exact same message to Saul. Verse 12, Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancients say, wickedness proceeds out of the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. So do you, do you get any hint of arrogance or pride or... It, it's just unbelievable humility. And what can I do to reconcile this relationship? I have demonstrated to you that I had your life in my hand and I spared it. What can I do? Verse 16, so it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I which is true, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I rewarded you with evil. And, I have, and you have shown me this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? Therefore may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore swear to me now by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my, from my father's house. So David swore to Saul. And this oath was a mistake because it was not David's right to decide what God's direction would be to David once he became king. That was not his to give. Because God actually used David to spare the life of uh, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. You remember the story of Mephibosheth? Uh, the nurse is carrying him. She falls. He's crippled. He cannot support himself in any way, shape, or form. And David sustains Mephibosheth and his family throughout the rest of their life. Saul had seven other sons, however, that God commanded David to give over to the enemy so that they could be hanged. And you go, well, that doesn't sound very fair. Well, we don't need to presuppose and make promises about things in the future that we are not in charge of because David swore an oath that he did not, he was not able to actually uphold. And that's a real problem in the Old Testament because when you swear in the Old Testament, it was, I'm going to go do this. This is a big deal. So at the end of verse 22, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So we see that God can keep you safe in the cave. So whether you're in the city, in the forest, in the wilderness, on a mountain, in the cave, God can keep you safe there. And it does not matter what the odds are. Now there's also another psalm that David wrote while he's in the cave. We're not going to go into it today. But it's Psalm 57. And it's a great, another great insight into what was going on in David's heart. So just to recap real quick. 
So what's the point? So the opposite of a fleshly response is good. That's what God is looking out of us. God gave David so many opportunities to do the wrong thing. And he did the right thing, and he reinforced right behavior in his life. Number two, God can keep you safe. And number three, do right right now. Right now. It's good to plan to do right in the future, but do right right now. So what do I do with that? Well, go the opposite way against our flesh. Give your security to God. Because it's really not it's really not up to us anyway. Right? We, we think that we can build things and structures that will keep us safe, and that's really not going to happen. Um, and then ask God to show you the right thing to do right now. 